podcast and today I have the honour of introducing one of my running heroes, absolute running heroes, the amazing Charlie Spedding. Now for those that don't know who Charlie is, and I can't believe there's many listening to this that don't, but Charlie uh, won the 1984 London Marathon. Um, he then went on to take the bronze medal at the 1984 Olympic Games. Um, fourth in the Commonwealth Games in 1982 in the 10,000 metres. Um, sixth in the 1988 Seoul Olympic Games. Uh, the fourth fastest uh, British marathon runner of all time with a 208.33 uh, marathon. Um, and that was in London in 85. So, Charlie, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to, uh, to be here uh, in, in Durham uh, visiting you and recording this. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, so, you know, let's, let's kick things off. Let's go right back to the start of things. Your early life, um, growing up in Durham, um, and your first sort of experience of running, which I think, if I recall from your biography, was, was a 100-metre dash race, handicapped 100-metre dash race. So let's sort of, let's have a little talk about that. Well, I was in junior school, I'd be about uh, six, maybe, the yep. first race, and then the, our form teacher handicapped on height, thinking taller boys could probably run faster. And I was the shortest in my heat, so I had the most start. And it was 100 yards, but I only had to run about 95 I've got to start on them all um, and I sprinted as fast as I could and every one of them came past me and I finished last and I still remember how devastated I felt I, I thought what on earth is wrong with me that I can't beat people over such a short distance even when I've got to start uh, well now I know of course that I don't have any fast twitch muscle fibres and I've got plenty of slow twitch muscle fibres but I knew nothing about that and I've never been able to sprint um, which is why I ended up running marathons after going through the whole yeah. range of, of track events. Uh, but the, the thing, I think the important thing about that is I still remember it vividly and I never wanted to feel like that again. So when I was, when I was asked to run races, or, or told to run races, <laughs> later on in school, I had this memory of, well, I'm not going to be last. And so yeah. I tried really hard. And uh, running longer distances, I just naturally did better yeah because you then went on to sort of obviously in your school life um onto the teams and your, your older brother michael was also on the teams and things like that and you you actually became um you were running up the age groups um above you above your age um on the same teams as, as, as michael yeah. was and things like that and i know in your book you said you were sure he was very proud of of you of you being able to yeah. run with that and <laughs> yeah but he didn't like me no. by his younger brother either um yeah, and on school teams was was where I had my first real sense of competitive running and um, first success as well. Um, and even winning a you know winning a cross country race from your school against one other school, um, it's a big deal when you first do it. Yeah. Um, you know, winning at any winning a race at any level is is a big deal. Yeah. Um, and that spurred me on because I'd never really been. Uh, successful at anything else. I was um, a late developer um, academically as well as, as physically. So I was uh, younger, I was near the bottom of the class and I was hopeless at sport. Um, but I think that all, luckily that motivated me to be better rather than I just thought, well, I'm no good at anything, gave up. I, yeah. I had the opposite um, I recall. attitude. 
I recall from your first book, Charlie, from last to first, the first book that you wrote, when you mentioned you know, thinking about your, your earliest time there, finishing last in that, that 100 metre dash, and um, how in schools, at the time when you wrote the book, was it 2009, about That's published? When it came out, published, I'd, published, I'd been yeah. writing it for years yeah. up to then. And you mentioned how in schools they've got this not non-competitive, they don't want people, you know, and, and you criticise that, I understood that. Could you make the listener aware of your feelings on well, the, re I, the reasons for why competition in schools is important? Um, the, the, I don't know how true it is now, but at the, mm. the time, the early 2000s, yeah. there was a big push towards non-competitive sport because they didn't want the ones who weren't very good to feel bad about themselves and, and that idea of everyone must have prizes. Well, I've got, I've got several problems with it. First of all, that, that's, that's not real life. Yeah. It's not real life at all, that everyone will get prizes. You, and the other thing I thought was that some people are, uh, some children are more academically gifted and some are more um, gifted when it comes to sport. And my argument was, would you give everybody the same result in a maths exam and give everybody a prize no matter they're doing that what, right now, what, aren't they? What percentage <laughs> they are. So no matter what percentage you got, because it's the same theory as giving everybody a prize in sport. The people who are good at sport should have their chance to win. Yeah. The way that someone who's good at, say, maths comes top of the tests at that subject. And, and Brilliant, brilliant way right. of putting it. Yeah, it makes yeah. complete sense when it you does. draw those comparisons. Yeah, yeah and I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that in your book stood out to me because I was sort of... I just missed out maybe on that in school, but my younger brother, um, he was during that whole time where it was, yeah, non-competitive. And we came from a sporting family. He was probably the least competitive of, of, of the family. Um, but that didn't then instill in him any sort of real drive to sort of want to compete or want to try and find what he was good at and ex could find, uh, could excel at and things like that. And yeah, I always thought that, you know, that... that sort of mentality of non-competitiveness in schools and things that really created you know a generation where they felt I mean I suppose nowadays the generation that, that now are adults are, where it's it's anything's available to them because everyone's equal on that level where it's you don't have to work hard and strive to achieve anything really because you know you, you all get a prize at the end of the day but the, but there's nothing satisfying in that is there no. if you all get a prize it's it's it immensely satisfying to to work with something and struggle to become better at it and, and, and make a big effort to become better at it and then achieve some success at whatever it is whether it's sport or anything else and at whatever level you get to if you feel like well I, I've, I've achieved more than I thought I could because of all the effort I put in I think that's enormously rewarding and enormously important and it's far more important than simply being handed prizes so no one's upset yeah definitely and i suppose from that talking about that sort of that that attitude that that builds then on on you um there's a there's a, a great story that you tell in your book and this this is jumping forward quite a, a, a many years now um from from there from your school days but um you're, you're in the pub um uh, I think at, at Newcastle train station is it um and um you, you're listening to a conversation and this for me, when I read this bit, uh, very much, it, it was a, a little bit of a, a click in my head, and I know in the, in the story that's what you sort of say to yourself, it's, it's a way of you um, changing your mentality, and I, 
it's probably gonna let you tell the story because it makes the most sense for you to for, to retell that story. Um, well, it was it was about um, two people I overheard. Um, talking to their boss if I remember rightly about some project they had on and and one of them was saying oh this is going to be great it's going to be hard work but it'll be really good once we do it and the other one was saying well I'm not too sure you know this could happen and that could happen and it was it was it just struck me that you know one of them was really it was going to be difficult but he was full of enthusiasm and he was going to do his best and this other guy was just full of doubt and I, and I just sat there thinking well I bet you the enthusiastic guy does a better job of this. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it, it, you don't need to know any psychology to understand that. But then it made me think about how, how positive was I at the time. And I was very I was diligent as well. I was very diligent in my training. You know, I would yeah. do my training and I would run races and I would try my best. Um, but it really... I then started to realise that our performances come down a lot to the self-image we have in our heads of, of who we are and what we are and what we can do. And we've all got this sort of comfort zone. And if you go outside that comfort zone, if your subconscious mind is, is trying to pull you back yeah. in, um, it can be what you wear. I mean, yeah. some people you know, walk down the street wearing something they think looks ridiculous, they're going to feel physically uncomfortable. And if you've tried to do something that you don't think you can, your mind tries to pull you back from it. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to improve my um, my attitude to what I can achieve, and and do positive things to try and change it. Um, and I worked on that for quite a while, and that I really do believe was the big step up from me from being. I mean, I was a, I was. I was a good runner. Yeah. I'd been a good runner for a long time, and I was fringe uh, internationals. I would occasionally yeah. get a, an, an odd international here and there. So I was a good runner, but no one was going to call me a great runner at that stage. And I'm sure that changing my perspective on how I saw myself and, and what I did and what I thought I could do made the leap to the higher level I reached eventually. Um, and it's making it sound easy it's not easy uh, at all but it's a process and it started with um, as I say in that chapter yeah. uh, it started with vocabulary changing yeah. the words I used yeah because I think so the, the one word you, you pointed out was we all sort of say if someone asks how you are or how's your training going as you say it's okay or uh, not bad or not bad yeah people say not bad so you you qualify by putting not in front of it, but you actually pick the word bad, bad yeah. to talk about the thing that you give a huge amount of your life to and you love doing and you want to do well at. Um, it's, it's just a, um, you know, it's, it's partly a modesty thing. Yeah. Um, but, but it's still, <coughs> if you think about your subconscious mind, if you keep attaching the word bad to that thing you're trying to do, it's not the word that's going to yeah. push you to the greatest performance of your life. Yeah. Um, Do you think that's a, a slightly cultural thing to oh, the UK yeah. as well? Because obviously yeah. there is a very, I suppose, take America for example, very different attitude towards sport and it's yeah. all high power, fast action and everything like that. Yeah. And yeah. I suppose the UK sports scene, both running and, and, and outside of running, is always that sort of gentlemanly sport of, of the world. And obviously 
from athletics own roots in the amateur days and everything yeah. like that um, to where it is currently that sort of yeah yeah I, I, it is but I think you I, I would also say in there um, if you want if you're trying to be one of the best you can't be the same as everybody else yeah you've got to be different in some way uh, if you're going to be at the top of the heap whatever heap you're talking about yeah. um, you've got to be slightly different um, so you've got I thought well um, I tried training harder and that just got me injured yeah um, and I I thought well I need to I need to be different I need to think differently and and it seemed to work for me yeah. it did work for me definitely yeah. um, I did thinking differently got me to adjust my training as well which then also suited me better um, I'd been I've been following basically what everybody else did yeah in terms of training you know the Lydiard's approach yeah. of, of a block of mileage and then a transition period of hills and things and then speed work in the summer yeah um, and, and everyone was doing that and I was doing it because everyone was saying that's what you should do well it worked brilliantly for people like Peter Snell yeah. but Peter Snell had absolutely fantastic basic speed I've got practically no basic yeah. speed and it just slowed me down and I found I had to do some kind of faster work all year round um, to maintain what little bit of pace I had. Yeah. Um, it was never that was never going to turn me into a sprinter. Yeah. But allowed me to um, not struggle so much at the beginning of track seasons. Um, I w because I hadn't done anything very fast through all the and I had loads and loads of strength and stamina. Yeah. But it's no use if you can't go fast enough to to use it. Um, and for, I mean, it, what Lydiard was suggesting works for some people, but yeah. it doesn't work for everybody, like, like almost every, yeah. you've got to find what works for you. Yeah. And that didn't work for me. And I changed to doing, I'm not, I'm not talking flat not flat out speed work, but much faster paced work yeah. during the winter. And then would be traditional to be seen in just doing miles. Yeah. And you're sat in this pub, you're writing down your goals, about 28 years of age? Yeah. 28. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And I suppose, uh, again, I suppose to tie into that and um, on that on that list, one of your goals, and I know in the in the book you sort of mentioned one of the goals was to, to win the Olympic medal um, on there, and then you always felt that then sort of... That, was, that was more a wildest dream yeah. than a goal, because yeah. you know, it, it was... I think I was thinking through um, trying to become better and better, yeah. and then the ultimate end of that is an Olympic medal. Yeah. So yeah, it crossed through my mind, yeah. but I never took it seriously until so. I got much, much closer to yeah. it. But the, the, I think the point of that process was I was always going to try to go up the next step, yeah. and then when you're there, you try to go up the next step, and then the next step. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, a sort of it was a constant process of trying to improve. Yeah. on what I've done before. Yeah, and I think, so I mean, I, the, the reason I mentioned that was then because, um, and again, we're jumping forward and we'll, we'll revisit um, definitely LA, but the, the bit I wanted to sort of bring on that was, obviously you had that sort of, I suppose, dream in there of that Olympic medal, but then I know you, when you got to the Olympics and it was a possibility, and then you were in that, 
um, final battle with, with John Tracy in that final stretch, um, you talk about sort of how your body and your mind sort of said, no, you, you said an Olympic medal. You didn't say which colour. Um, and, uh, and then obviously it came to a sprint finish, which was the, again, who mentioned well, the sprints. I, I, and th- this is, that was me theorising. And, and yeah. Some people have, have not understood what I've said in the book mm. there and thought, well, are you saying you just didn't try for yeah. a silver medal? I'm saying, you know, for anyone who can't remember it, um, John Tracy and I ran side by yeah. side for the last three miles. The winner, Carlos Lopez, was clear. Yeah. There was a gap behind us. We were both going to get a medal, but we didn't know which. And um, when it came, we had a sprint round the last lap, yeah. and Tracy beat me by a couple of seconds. And um, I was trying as hard as I could on a conscious level. Yeah. My mind was saying, you're a few yards away from a silver medal. A silver medal is much better than a bronze yeah. medal. But I, afterwards, I, when I thought about it, I thought, I'm absolutely sure if Tracy and I had been racing for gold and silver, I would have been able to find more because yeah. there's a big difference between winning it and silver. Yeah. If we'd been running for bronze and fourth, I would have been able to find more because there's a huge difference between getting a medal and not yeah. quite getting a medal. I'm not suggesting for a moment I would have beaten Tracy. I'm saying I would have been able to find more because it would have mattered so much deep down inside me. Yeah. Consciously, I was trying as hard as I could. Deep down in my subconscious, I reckon I was ecstatically happy yeah. that I was going to get any coloured medal. Now, it didn't express itself, but I, I really do believe that to produce uh, physical performances that you might think to yourself you can't do, yeah. You, it needs to matter to you enormously. Um, and I, 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 I found that when I, when I ran races, even in where I was in good shape, um, I sometimes just couldn't run as well as I thought I should because it was just a race to run a race. It didn't really yeah. matter. Um, one of my contemporaries, Steve Jones, appeared to be able to give everything for anything that was a race. Yeah. He did, he, I think he didn't discriminate consciously or subconsciously, but it was a race he gave everything. Uh, or, or, sorry, it mattered everything. Yeah. To me, it just, just my personality, uh, an Olympic final mattered enormously more than a local road race. Yeah. And I would try as hard as I could in a local road race, there are depths you can reach when it really matters to you that, that certainly for me you can't reach when it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So the thing I've talked about in my book quite a lot is what you want, why do you want it and how much do you want it. Yeah. And you've got to understand those things to be able to produce your absolute best. Yeah. So um, I suppose if we, if we now go back again a little bit, um, obviously you... You were coached um, by Lindsay Dunn, yes. who um, obviously sadly passed away earlier this year. Um, and obviously some obviously great advice and great coaching from Lindsay. And, and I suppose one of the times was, was like you say, you, you wanted to move up to the marathon um, to get away from the risk of having to have that sprint finish and, and being left well, on the always, I was always losing crap really yeah. good. I had a 
being dropped by better runners or losing this in the, in the spring finish. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I know I know Lindsay sort of was, was quite key on you staying to the track, getting that work in there, that speed and getting that, that British title as well, uh, over yeah. over ten thousand yeah. metres, wasn't it? Yeah. Um and then she had quite a different philosophy uh, as well for altitude training. Um that both you and Lindsay sort of I think worked together to, to come up with where you obviously nowadays most people would want to go out and spend several months out at altitude and things like that, but um, you both sort of felt that you could get if you couldn't you know not everyone has access to that sort of time, but yeah. you could go for small stints and, and really yeah. make that work. And do you want to talk about that a little bit? And um, I found that really interesting. You well, were in Kenya at the time. And well, uh, I, I did. I did go to Kenya for a few weeks um, because I had a friend who was doing boulder service mm. overseas there. Um, but the, but I wasn't. What what Matthew's talking about here was later on in my career. That mm. was quite early on. Um, and Lindsay and I went to um, altitude in um, in Switzerland. Yeah. And we were there for about ten days. Well, most people would say that wasn't long enough, but we we trained quite hard, and we did some fast running, some fast, fairly fast long runs, and some really quite fast track settings as well. And what that did was to um, was to create the ability to deal with higher amounts of oxygen jet. Mm. And then so the, the benefit was when we came back um, home to sea level, we were able to do um, harder sessions than we would have been. Because the often the the limiting factor in a lot of training sessions is how much oxygen jet you can cope yeah. with, rather than maybe how much strength you've got in your legs. You know, if you you might do a session where your legs just leg muscles just wobble too much that you can't go on. But most often hard sessions, it's it's oxygen jet. How much of that you can cope yeah. with? So I found that I was able to. Um, do sessions that would have had me in too much oxygen debt before going to altitude, um, and it trained other systems in my body to cope with that. So the real benefit of the short burst of altitude was in the training we did after coming back, and then after that we were we were better runners and better able to compete, and it certainly seemed to work. Yeah. Yeah. No, because I and I I went um it was after reading your. Your book. To be fair, I went to uh, I went out to Front Ramier, um and did a, a stint at altitude, but I only had the time to do um, two weeks, um, and that was I, I followed that principles and those those training practices in in that regard, and um, while out there, and yeah, I, I thought there was a, a, a great benefit to that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, uh, um, it, was a, it was a good race season when I came back, so yeah. I, was happy, I was happy with that. Um, so. Um, yeah, let's let's jump to you. Sort of your, your first marathon, which is the Houston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, see your 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 idea was on that was that a lot of people um, choose sort of the likes of London as their first marathon, um, and it's usually running you know crazy photo fast time, especially uh, current times now. The yeah. guys are running is is it's just um, hard to believe at times. Um, and so you wanted to go somewhere where you felt. You looked at the results. You looked at the field. Um, 
you felt you could be competitive and you could learn the trade, learn the, the trade of racing, the marathon. Um, yes. And you had to pay your own way there. You took you, the, the organisers. I think they, they gave you entry to it, but you had to get yourself there, didn't they? Didn't you? They, they had a... Um they had a strict policy of only paying travel expenses to people who'd run under two hours, 16 minutes yeah. for a marathon. And I'd never run a marathon, so I didn't qualify, even though um, this was in late 1983 yeah. when I was trying to get into the race. And I was, I'd was i won the 3-8-10,000 metre title in the summer of 83, so I was national 10,000 metre champion. Yeah. Um, but he said, sorry, it's our, we can't make exceptions. He said, happy to have you in the race and we'll look after you if you can get yourself here so I paid my own way there and back in the 1980s um, it cost me about 750 pounds for a return flight right. um, you know flights are much cheaper now but I I thought well um, I wanted to test the marathon yeah before the the Olympic trials in London to see if it was going to suit me I didn't think even though I just won the three years ten thousand in eighty three summer, I just didn't I wasn't I knew I wasn't fast enough probably to get into the Olympic team for ten thousand and that I wouldn't do anything when I was there. And I, I'd always thought, well, I will marathon probably be my best race. Now's the time to do it because I've achieved what I wanted to achieve at the ten thousand. Now is the time to move up. But I wanted to try it out. So I found Houston which was in January. And I paid my own way there. Um, and they put me in a hotel and looked after me and all the rest of it, and it, it was fine. Um, and extraordinary thing happened. Well, well the, the race was running pretty cold weather. Yeah. It was only slightly above freezing. Um, and Massimo Magnani, Italian runner, was trying to qualify for their team. And he finished in the top eight in the previous Olympic marathon. And after about 16 miles of all running in a, in a group together, he and another guy went away quite hard. And I thought, well, I'm running steady five minute, around about five minute pace here, or near enough. I feel all right, I'm just gonna stick to this. Got to around about 20 miles, and I thought the group I was in was slowing down. I thought, I, I can go, I can do better than this. So I started to move away, and one of the runners came with me, and we got away. Um, and we picked up the pace and I felt, I felt fine. So we kept going and um, after running like that for about three miles, getting a big gap in front of the guy behind us, we went round a, a, a bend in the road and there way down in the distance was Magnani and I've forgotten the other guy's name, I'm afraid. Uh, and I think it was. Um, and we saw them for the first time in over half an hour. And, um, the two of us just looked at each other and said, let's try and catch them. We'd never spoken to each other yeah. all race, but as soon as that happened, let's So we worked together and we caught up with them with less than a mile to go. Um, and then for the first time, less than a mile to go, for the very first time, it crossed my mind that I might win the race because I just wanted to go there and run well. Yeah. Um, and so there were four of us in the leading group. Um, luckily, I had checked out the finish before... Um, before the race, and we went down this long road for, and then there was a there was a right angle turn, with a building, so you couldn't really see it, and then it was about 150 yards to the finish line, and 
we were approaching this, the pace was picking up a little bit and it got down to three of us. And Ragnani was just nipped in front as we approached this bend. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to sprint out of this bend. There's only 150 to go. So we went into the bend, of course, he sprinted out the bend. And I sprinted out the bend. And he had about a yard and a half on me. Yeah. And we were both sprinting flat. Well, sprinting flat. I don't know how fast we were going <laughs> after 26 miles. And I can't sprint anyway. Uh, but we were trying to sprint flat out. And 100 yards to go, he was about a yard in front. 50 yards to go, he was about half a yard in front. And as we reached the line, I was up level with him. And just in absolute agony of sprinting all that way. And I just somehow managed to get my chest in front of him. Um, and I didn't actually know whether I'd won or not. Yeah. As we crossed, we just flashed across the line. And I wasn't sure. As we, as we, as we went through the, the tunnel at the finish, I was in front of him. About 15 minutes later, um, the race organised came and found me and said, well, we, we had a meeting and we're all pretty sure you crossed the line. <laughs> you reached the line first. <laughs> so I'd won a sprint finish at last. <laughs> um, and it just made it, I needed to have my opposition to have 26 miles of tiredness in their legs before I could out sprint them. And I got a question for you. Because you won twenty thousand pounds that race. Well, I won twenty thousand American dollars. Sorry, which Sorry, was yeah. about um, fourteen thousand pounds at the time. Yes, fantastic. But going back, there was a point in your career where you won a television set, and you sold the television set, and your amateur status was it, uh, it could have been taken away from you. I don't know. And I was, I was thinking about the ghost from it. Did you ever come across? Yes, I've got John. Tarrant. Tarrant. John Tarrant. Did you ever meet John Tarrant? No. I'm Race against him. <laughs> no, I said it before, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. I've got his book upstairs. I've, I've, I haven't read it from cover to cover. I read the ghost from that. Matthew kindly lent it to me. Great story. Really sad story. Yeah, oh, great story. But then story. The, the people at that time, they were trying to stop money going into the sport. And when you look at the sport today, yeah. Could they, they, if they were here today, those guys, they would say, "Well, look at the sport now." Would they, would they have a, would they take the high horse and say, "Well, that's what we were trying to prevent," and would you have any sympathy with them as well? Um, sympathy with the people who didn't want it to become open. Yeah, yeah the people who didn't want money, in, but you know, and, and you get the Diamond League and the vast amount of money at the very top end, no, which I don't know enough about, by the way. But well, it go, it goes back to. Um, amateur athletics which was formed by gentleman athletes to keep the riffraff out oh, basically yeah. back more than a century ago because um, back in the 1800s mm. and early 1900s there were a lot of uh, professional runners who, who'd have competitions against one other runner, right, yeah. and there's huge amounts of betting involved yeah. and, um, and they, they separated it into professionals and amateurs which meant that it was much easier for um, people at university to compete in sports, whereas working men who um, had tough physical jobs all day, um, it made it much harder for them to be involved. And, and that dragged on right into the 1970s and 80s, this idea that it had to be... And you um, had to make some great sacrifices. <coughs> Financially, there was a point though where your father was going to pass on the, the business yeah, um, I, I mean, if I and you, you made a decision where it was basically, it seemed to me in the book, 
I'm going to make the same. I could have wealth and money, but I'm 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 not. I don't want that right now. I'm going to focus and get the best from my running potential, even though there was no financial rewards at the time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's quite quite a brave thing to do, and, and people maybe wouldn't make that decision anymore because it's not. It's okay. We don't mind the dog. But <laughs> just so the people know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not me copying. <laughs> Um, well, I, I think that when it started to become open, um, they they did a transition thing and they had trust funds. And if I remember rightly, that $20,000 went into a trust fund. Um, and I, I had a trust fund for, a, when I first started earning some um, some money in the sport, which you know, I was into my 30s before I, that happened, um, it went into trust funds, but they didn't last long because you were allowed to take expenses out of your trust funds. So if people would say, you know, I've got to, I need to drive to the track to do my training. Um, can I have the money out of the trust fund to buy a car? And so people would take huge amounts of money out, or, or I need to live closer to the track. Uh, can I have all the money out of my trust fund to put a deposit down on a house? Um, as, as if it, it's a training expense and they realized that it just created some bureaucracy for no useful purpose and uh, so they, they just gave them up and, and it became open um, but I was involved in that transition um, I wonder what year that would be that sort of I can't remember the exact date but it was early completely. 80s yeah yeah well I, well I mean getting on to um, I suppose uh, this is jumping to 88 actually but I know me when my mum ran in the London Marathon in 88 um, that was the first time she ever received any substantial amount of money, mm-hmm. and it was just a an envelope under the desk, uh, sort of thing at the after party, and um, she quickly looked at it and quickly hid it back away, and uh, it was still, uh, yeah, sort of a, I suppose a shocking well, sort of thing to occur. Well, the London Marathon at the time <laughs> used used to have was called participation money, yeah, and you couldn't call it prize money or appearance fees. It, it was participation money at the start line, which is appearance money and participation money at the finish line, which is prize money. And they, they just gave it these daft names to put up this pretense of it still being an amateur sport. Yeah. Um, <coughs> but it's changed now. And um, But I, during your career, ideally, you you wouldn't have had any of those issues. It would have just been straightforward, as, as I suppose it is today. Um, like with the television set and all that, but it didn't matter. It was the sport. It was well. It was I, I yeah. It would it would have been it would have been nice if I'd um, yeah. made the sort of money that Premier League footballers make. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but it wasn't there, and and it wasn't it was absolutely never why I was involved. But I was involved in the sport, be, first of all, because I really loved it, yeah. and I I was just driven by trying to find out how good I could be. And that, that was it. That yeah. was it. I think that's but you don't get that today, don't you? Because you get what I'm trying to say. I suppose is a lot of athletes are not running for those reasons. I was going to say you um, and me, you and me have this discuss, discussion quite a lot. Where um, and that's a, you, that's you a beautiful. Like to, what I'm saying is that's a beautiful yeah. reason for someone to be getting the best out of themselves, isn't it? They want to be as fast as you can. But for a lot of people, it seems to be more. The rewards, the, the the potential, maybe for, for you know. Well, that's what that's what I'm saying. You and you and me have this discussion quite a lot because I know 
you keep telling me I should go and do these races where there's some better prizes and stuff. And I say, well, I, I'm not fussed on the prize, really. I want, I want my prize is the, the time that I run or the performance that, are, you know, um, even if it's these the, the sort of charity races where they might not be as, there's not really a prize in it, but it's like the local race. And it's the winning that local race in front of your town sort of thing. I think, is, is no, a I think prize with that point, I'm, what, I, what I don't appreciate is where there can be maybe 2,000 people in a race and they're all being charged 20 or yeah. 30 pounds and there's no prices at all. And I think, well, that's a bit odd because they've raised 40,000 and it is a competition and surely there should be some reward um, yeah. on that basis. And the, yeah, it's the charity sort of element of it, which I think is questionable as well when you, when you look into that. Well, it, it um, the sport is about competition. I, I think it's brilliant that loads of people, uh, thousands and thousands of people, who don't, you wouldn't necessarily call runners, yeah. run the Great North Run or the London Marathon. It's great that they do it, and um, but but it is a competitive sport that has lent itself to mass participation. Um, and I don't think uh, people can do organise fun runs, and they call them fun runs. Uh, but things like the London Marathon and the Great North Run are competitive events, which um, lots of people can enjoy. But I don't think they should ever lose the point of it being a competition. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think and I think that some it does get muddied the water of uh, on that sort of side of things. And obviously this year everything up in the air, races cancelled left, right and centre and then, you know, obviously London have, have said they're going to go ahead but with an elite only race um, and I know obviously people have sort of complained of like, well, you know, why why do the elites get to race and again, it's, but I suppose that's it, it's down to that, you know, that's fundamentally athletics running as a sport is, is, is competitive and, you know, the, the, that sort of mass participation has grown out of those few elite runners that, that would race, you know, going all the way back, as we say, a century ago, sort of thing. But it wasn't, and I know I talk in in the shop about running shoes and things like that to customers, um, and I talk about some of the the, the older, more legacy brands, the, the likes of Nike and Asics and, and so on, um, and the the feeling of those shoes being firmer feeling shoes because that firmer feeling gives that ground contact force, and so for somebody who wants to go faster, feels that you can feel that and adjust the pace and things like that to it, whereas you know some of the softer shoes and stuff like that out there don't allow that that yeah. sensation that feeling but have more comfortable uh, you know might feel more comfortable might take more pressure off the joints and things like that and that sort of evolution i suppose of the the running architecture um yeah. Yeah. as a sport but its fundamental basis is is you know and where it started and it's you know we can't forget the, the history of it and that is you know without Olympians such as yourself yeah. and, and things like that what would those the mass people have to Insp- you know, inspire them and, and, yeah. and things. So. And all those those shoe developments were were made to increase performance. Yeah. Um, and it, well, it's 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 human nature to strive to be better, isn't it? Yeah. In, in in all sorts of fields, any field. Yeah. Uh, but certainly in sport as well. Um, I, I I think you're right that I I do come across runners who think that when they've reached a level where they can earn enough money to get by, to make a living, they, they regard themselves as, uh, well, I'm a professional athlete now, I get paid to run. Um, and the, that's fine, that's great, but 
I think the problem is that you then make decisions on which race to run depending on the bills you've got to pay yeah. rather than focusing your entire year on one race as I did in 1983 yeah. to the 3H 10,000 metres and you was, say was the race it was the only race I was interested in that year and you say in your book under pressure one of the most important attitudes a top runner can have is making the right decisions yes yes absolutely um, it, you can a lot of people can can make the right decision if they sit down and think it through but you have to be able to make the right decision when you're under physical and emotional stress. When you when you're in a race, it it's hurting. You you're pushing hard, and the race matters to you, and um, you really want to do well. And somebody makes a move um, away from you, and you have to decide quickly. Am I going with that or am I letting him go? And um, Or you make a move. You decide, I'm going to make a move. This, I'm, I've got to get away from these people. Um, you know, sitting down, talking to your mate beforehand, it's quite easy to say, well, if this happens, I'll do that. But actually making the decision under pressure is much harder. And I'm not sure everyone appreciates how important making the right decision is under those difficult conditions, um, it makes it can make all the difference to you, yeah. to your success. No matter how much training you've put in, how fit you are, if you make the wrong decision at a crucial point in the race, you know, that, that might negate all that training you've done. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, we, we sort of skipped over um, eighty four London. Um, just jump to I'm going to jump to the Olympics and uh, right yeah. here just because I think it ties into that nicely. Um, is obviously you're there, you know, in the sort of the call rooms and stuff like that before the race. You're seeing, you know, all these other names that are, that, you know, um, well, not Dixon was there, the So Twins were there. You've got, um, so you've got yeah, Lopez. Um, um, that, well, there was. Everybody was anybody in marathon yeah. running was there. It was extraordinary to, to be in the same room yeah. with them all. And I suppose and you terrifying. <laughs> and and that's where obviously that pressure then being in that room, that was where you then sort of like you say made that decision and sort of said to yourself that actually, you know, if you run your perfect race, this is your yeah. th this is yeah. your opportunity. Yeah. And, and well, at first I, I was seeing this as oh look at all the people you have. And and it was making me nervous and stressed. Um, then I stepped outside the room so I couldn't see them <laughs> and and I thought well just turn this round one one brilliant race and look at all the people I could see uh, and that and just saying that to myself just flipped me I mean I was still nervous yeah. but you know a lot of people just cave in under the mentally under the under the, that situation you think you're running an Olympic Games and everybody is anybody is there and it, it and it it just made me think what an opportunity, um, and I, and I and I held on to that idea from that moment on throughout the race. Yeah. Um, vitally important thought process there. Yeah. And then making decisions, the right decisions during the race as yeah. well. But but just beforehand, that's a time when a lot of people blow their chances. Yeah. Before the race, yeah. 
And um, so, I mean, I mean, can you obviously can you talk us through that that Olympic marathon? Obviously, you know, through the race itself. I mean, it's a lot to, to talk through, but you know, some of those key moments and that and that. Well, um, it was very hot, wasn't it? Very, yeah. very hot. Um, so everyone's trying to run um, steady, sensible pace, and we run along in reason good. But it, it wasn't super fast. It wasn't slow either. Um, Maybe sort of two eleven pace yeah. early on, um, and we got to around about six miles in, and um, one of the African guys who I didn't recognise, we run slightly downhill, yeah, um, big wide open road, and, and and he just went to front me, really picked the pace up, and when I said, oh, that's a crazy run that fast, but then. Uh, Jumari Kanga was one of the favourites went with him and, and and several other of the good dangerous Africans went with him yeah. and I thought is he really going that fast and then I saw um, just a few yards in front of me Rob Di Castello the reigning world champion kind of step round the guy in front of him to pick up his pace and go after him and I thought well you know this 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 is the biggest race of my life. This is the race where I've told myself I'm going to run the greatest race of my life. You can't just let people go. Yeah. So I picked up my pace and I went and we ran pretty hard for three quarters of a mile. Um, and I got onto this leading group, which was about 10 or 12. And, and the pace slackened off back to, well, slackened off slightly, yeah. but that group was away. And um, at about seven or eight miles, and and if you hadn't gone with it, you weren't going to yeah, be involved. Yeah. So that that was a really important decision, which at first seemed like a crazy decision because it was you know because of the heat and all yeah. the rest of it. And I, I, I thought to myself, oh, the heat's the same for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's a point in worrying about it. Uh, but it was I thought I have to be in the leading group if I'm going to run the rest of my life. So I got there, and then it settled down, and and. We ran together without anybody trying to make any moves, but maintaining a decent pace for mile after mile after mile, which was great, actually, because I just, more miles went by and I was in the leading group feeling all right. You know, yeah, we were, we were running five minute miles in yeah. baking hot weather. Um, but. I, w I was I, w I wasn't in any sort of trouble. Yeah. I was coping absolutely fine, um, and I was running along in a leading group. And, and the further it went, I thought, "Oh, this is great! Look, here I am. I'm in the I'm in the leading group, top ten in the Olympic marathon. This is this is what I'm running. I, I thought so I'm running great. This is what I told myself I would do. Yeah. I was going to run really great today, and it's happening." And that, and it just kind of um, built my confidence, um, and and we continued on, um, and ran on and on and on, <laughs> and then we started. We got to about twenty miles, and I thought, well, something's got to happen now. You know, we're just we're just all still running along. Yeah, we're all getting more tired. We're just running along. Something. This is when something's going to happen. And I had spent loads of time imagining, yeah. visualizing that I'd be in this leading group 
and someone like Di Castella would make this big surge and I would just go with him and I would hang on and hang on and hang on and I'd visualise that type of thing over and over again so that I was just expecting it and I wouldn't have to think about it, I would just go. Um, and we got to 21 miles and I looked around and, and Di Castella was, was just a yard or two off the back of it and I thought he's not going to be making a big surge and I looked around the rest of the group and I thought there's nobody here going to make a big push from a long way out there. Nearly all of these are going to fancy their chances late on and Seiko was there. He won loads of races taking the lead in the last 200 yards. Yeah. That was his style. That's what he would do if he could. And I thought this, you know, I'd imagined hanging on to someone like Di Castello making a move along way from home, probably because that was my best chance as well. Yeah. Uh, a long run for home was something that I thought I, I wasn't going to out sprint these people to finish. And I thought, well, this is what I need. This is what I've prepared for. This is what I've trained for. And it struck me, about 22 miles, it struck me that, well, I'm going to have to do it. It never crossed my mind. I, I thought I'd gone through every possible combination of what might happen in this race. It had never crossed my mind that we'd get to 22 miles in the Olympic Marathon and I would be thinking, we're not going fast enough. <laughs> we, I need to pick up the pace. Um, and so I, I had to give myself about 400 yards to think about it yeah. and mentally commit myself. And we went past a... Um, station, a water station, on the side of the road, and everyone veered off and I just kept going, straight. Um, I thought, I need to pick up the pace a lot more than I need to drink of water. And I didn't, I didn't surge, I just increased it slightly. Um, and they all had to dash to catch me. And Ikanga went in front of me again, because he always wanted yeah. to lead. Uh, but we got rid of Di Castella by doing that, and, and I think someone else and then a little bit later I thought no I'm going for it I'll never have this chance again and I went to the front and I picked up the pace seriously um, and went down to about 4.45 per mile pace it was, I, was yeah. go I was going as fast as I dared go thinking oh, can I hold this um, and what was the pace previous to that? Well, we've been doing approximately. Well, we've been um, we've been running about five minutes, slightly under five minutes for a while. When I when I missed the water station, I probably went to about four fifty five pace. Yeah. But when I went to the front for real, I picked it up, getting on for ten seconds a mile, um, and that stretched people and dropped people, and we went down to a group of four. Uh, and I couldn't keep up <laughs> all the way to the finish. Uh, I, 22 miles I did that, four miles. Um, and we, and uh, after a while, I, I glanced round and there was uh, there was Lopez and John Tracy and there was Jim, there was uh, Joseph and Zav from Kenya with us. And I thought, a group of four, I'm not leaving this all the way to the <laughs> the, the stadium and finishing fourth. So I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tuck in and try and let other people lead. And, and Even though when you go in the same pace, if you don't slow down at all, it's, 
it somehow seems slightly easier to run just behind somebody. Yeah. So I'll do that. And oh, I took Jimmy around for another quarter of a mile or so. And Carlos Lopez, who could run nearly a minute faster than me over 10k on the track, passed, just picked up the pace. Instinctively, I tried to go with him. Took him behind him. And he was just accelerating and accelerating. And, and I lasted 50 to 80 yards. And I thought, yeah. I can't do this. <laughs> and so I eased back. And, and John Tracy came up beside me but couldn't get past. And we realised that Nzau was gone. Um, <clears throat> and I went past, I remember distinctly going past a sign that said 37 kilometres. So there were five kilometres to go. Yeah. And I remember thinking clearly, I'm going to get a medal. Then I saw the sign and I thought, five kilometres. I'm going to get a medal if I, can, if I can hold on for five kilometres. And so instead of being excited about getting the medal, because I haven't got it yet, but I was yeah. in a position to get one, my whole mental focus went down to, you're going to get a medal if you can hold it together. Yeah. So I went back to that really focused um, attention to running as efficiently as I could. It was hurting now. Yeah. It was really hurting. Um, but we were running fast. We were probably running about, Tracy and I probably ran about 4.50 per mile for the last three miles. I didn't, we didn't realise, but we were pulling further and further away from the people behind us. But Lopez was pulling further and further away from us because he was running in the 4.30s per mile yeah. for some of us. Um, so the, we started talking about decisions, didn't we? Yeah. Um, Big decision early on to go with that, what I thought was a daft pace, got me into the leading group. So it was an aggressive decision I made, yeah. which was the right one. Although and in Houston, you did the opposite, but obviously yes, different, yes, different yeah, field. Diff different situation, yeah. different situation. And that worked for you as well. It worked for me. Yeah. Um, and then four miles, 24, 22 miles into the race, I made the aggressive decision to really try and shake people off. And that worked as well. Um, and and then you know, we, we mentioned earlier yeah. about the last lap and, yeah. and um, tried as hard as I could. But he, I expect Tracy would have outsprinted me at the end of any race. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, I was just going to, sorry, are you going to, no, 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 no. is it to do with that? No. no. I was going to go back <laughs> to sort of training, very difficult training in um, the northeast of England. And you're running through the time tunnel to avoid the, I imagine, the ice and the snow. I'm not sure. It was the yeah. only place you could find. There were no treadmills back then. No. In 1982. And there was no... Well, uh, when, when, I don't know when the first treadmill was, you know. I don't know. But there, weren't there was nothing there like that. There weren't any indoor tracks in the northeast, anywhere near the northeast of England. And, and we had, it was probably the late 70s, and we had a really big dump of snow and everywhere... Uh, the roads were were full of slush and all the paths were snow or ice and I thought well, to do any decent training I need to run on dry ground so I, I drove to the the time tunnel is a really busy road and there's a time but close to it there's a pedestrian time tunnel um, and it's you go down steep steps to get into it but it's fairly flat in the bottom and it's actually two tunnels like um, two bananas put together at, at their ends, right. 
so you there's a very sharp corner at each end but you can you could run laps but i used i did some um kind of roughly 400 meter reps which was involved one sharp bend so it's about 200 meters each right. um so yeah i, I trained sometimes i did sessions i believe you got in a tunnel. collared the first time you, you well there was there was a guy who um used to used to have people on on tunnels and stuff right. in those days in a little cabin and and he obviously heard me he, he was at the, at the entrance he obviously heard me going round and round. He came and asked me what I was doing. <laughs> and there was a big sign that you know said, um, you know, no, no this, no that. Um, and he said, um, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm running. He said, well, you shouldn't be doing it. And, and I said, well, you know, your sign says I can't, um, I can't smoke. I'm not smoking. I can't eat. Um, and it says I can't loiter. I'm, I, I definitely don't think I'm loitering. <laughs> I can imagine you were the adrenaline. You were quite aggressive with him. Or well, I, well, um, I, 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 I was. I, I was going to ask you another question. You see, I, I wasn't that. really aggressive. I, I was yeah. probably more sarcastic, which is yeah. probably my style. When I, when someone um, tries me to stop me doing something that isn't harming anybody else, yeah, yeah. I didn't see anybody else in that tunnel the whole time <laughs> I was there. Yeah. But he, he, you know, jobs were. He had to. I wasn't doing what I wasn't just going through the tunnel to get to the other yeah. end. Because I found myself in, in nothing like yourself, sir, but uh, local races, and um, you may be mispointed in the wrong direction. Uh, and because I'm all pumped up, you know, I, I feel like I've got no control over what I say, and my I'm just completely like a hothead, you know. Have you got any advice for someone like myself in regards to? That kind of behaviour, how to rein it in. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how you are. Thanks, Charlie. Um, <laughs> um, I, I would, I would suggest don't swear at them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good one. Because <laughs> that's, that's gets people really annoyed. <laughs> now, just point out, point out, it's their mistake. Their mistake for pointing me in the wrong direction. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. without abusing them. Or without getting abusive. But yeah. I say when you're running and you've got all this. Oh, I know. Yeah. And dogs are another thing. You know, you, I've been attacked by so many dogs, and then I have <laughs> they a. They can probably sense your aggression. <laughs> no, I don't. I think <laughs> they sense my fear. fear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And the dog owners. Um, Pop spots. My dogs was barking before. <laughs> as soon as I spoke. I, yeah. <laughs> And a few dog owners, um, I've had words with them, and it's become very, very a close call for me anyway, you know, because <laughs> they've got the, the dog as well as themselves. <laughs> but um, not to swear, that's it. That's, I had a question. Oh, we got in the book, you don't talk much about your wife and, and some of the other stories which Matthew has spoken about, uh, passed on, he's read a lot of books. In your relationship, did you find I don't know much about your wife, but was she a, a rock within the, the running world? She, she well, I, I didn't meet her until my running career was nearly finished. Oh, sorry, so sorry, I didn't realize she that. wasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. wasn't really involved in it, um, and uh, yeah. and I also because the didn't wanted I didn't want it to be a typical autobiography. I, I wanted it to be about running 
my experiences with it rather than about I thought it was brilliant my life. I thought it was brilliant because you talked about like the things that went wrong. A lot of people like to highlight the, the all the positives, but you learn well. I learned from reading where things went wrong, you know, as well. Well, I've um, had a lot of that, so that would have been a short book if it was only about the positives. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, yeah, you met you. Yeah. There's a farmer's daughter in the story, and that's well, a great, great story. Yeah, well, that is true. I mean, I, I only. Well, you uh, do mention you don't you mention you your wife in that story as well because then you you meet your wife shortly after that one or is that no no it's a, no no it's a few years later sorry never mind so the um, farmer's daughter well we it, it was really a story about how you fit training in um, <laughs> on a date on a date <laughs> well we, we went out for the whole day I mean I went I went for a, a run early in the morning and um, we we had a day out in the lake and. She lived near, near Durham as well. We we drove to Lake District and um, and we we you know saw the sights and all that kind of thing. And but in the in the boot of my car, I had a, a bag of running gear in and um, and a couple of thermos flasks of, of hot water and, and a washing up bowl and a towel and <laughs> deodorant and all the rest of it just in case. And we we ended up in this um, kind of grass mere. And she said, "Well, I've got a, I've got a really good friend lives here. I haven't seen for ages." And I said, "Well, you did visit." I said, "I said, well, is that all right?" I said, "Yeah, it's fine. How about show me which house it is, and I'll come back and pick you up in about forty minutes." And she said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I'll go for a run." <laughs> and, and she looked at me as 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 if. You know, didn't say anything, but his expression was, you think I'm going to sit in the car with you for the rest of the day when you're dripping with sweat? And she didn't say anything, but that was what her expression said. And I said, no, it's perfectly all right. Look, I opened the boot and I said, I've got my running gear. I'll change into the running gear. I've got all the stuff to get washed. I'll go for a half hour run, be in 40 minutes. So I did. And I found a car park and parked right in the far corner. Um... With, with the boot facing the hedge, um, I ran, you know, out and back so I didn't get lost. <laughs> As we've all done that oh, on yeah. the strange bit. <laughs> and I've just got a stand-up wash in, in the, out of the boot of my car. Um, got dressed in my car and uh, a deodorant and a coat and um, met her again after 40 minutes. Yeah. I'd never have known I'd been for a run except that my cheeks were probably slightly more pink than they were <laughs> when I dropped her off, <laughs> and it was uh, the story was just to. Uh, I mean, she was perfectly happy, but I didn't leave her, yeah. you know, sitting on the side <laughs> of the road while I went for a run. Uh, but I did, in essence, go for a five-mile run during the day. Yeah, um, and that's that finding that balance in the in 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 the life of of, a, of, a, of an athlete sort of thing. It's yeah. it's something we've discussed on on previous podcasts and stuff that in trying to find that. You know that balance that I know you were saying you can't go to the pub and stuff like that, and I was explaining to you that yeah. I happily go to the cinemas and yeah, and I'm still find the time. But it's not, you've not got that I can't, that balance. not that I can't go. No, but you. I think for myself, Charlie, you know a lot more about this. Finding balance and a rest and recovery, because um, you you were running twice a day, and mm -hmm. that that must have take its toll. Um, and I read some stuff which makes sense. You know, have a nap. Uh, you know, run, breakfast, shower, maybe have a nap then, 
But that's okay if you're not working. Yeah. But you were, work, I think you were working as well. Yeah, I was working, yeah. yeah. You so can't go through working. It, for some of the guys now, maybe it's easier, the fact that they... That's another question. How do you think you confer with the guys today? How would you get on with them? I mean, it's a silly question as well, but... Um, well, I, I I know some guys in the northeast who are good runners, and because and I... Um, Lindsay, yep. who... Really good friend of mine as well as great coach was was coaching them and and um, and I would meet them and, and I would when he coached them and he would occasionally have me come along to talk to them about some of the things we've talked about about you know your mental attitude to races and that kind of stuff and I've met them and and they are um, they're just as dedicated um, but actually all the ones I know are are working as well um, so I I. I don't know. I, I don't want to compare individuals, but I, I do find it hard to understand why um, I'm still fourth on the UK mountain list when I ran it 35 years ago. Yeah, that's an amazing achievement. At the same time, it, in the back end of the book, you talk about the 80s and compared to the uh, mid 2000s. Yeah. before the book was published. Really interesting statistics on uh, the percentage of men in the, in the top five, uh, top hundred at 5K, 10K in a marathon and how they've dra drastically been reduced and you had Paul Radcliffe and Mel Farah at the time and it was, it made really good, great sense that they had sort of Overshadowed, perhaps is that the Skewed word? the statistics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. people yeah. saw that as success yeah. but across the board, them, but be underneath it was big, big, the opposite. The opposite. Guess. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's is that still the same today? Because that book was eleven years ago. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much very I, similar. I think. Today. Um, okay. If I'm right, I think uh, fifteen hundred meters um, is quite a bit more depth yeah. than there was ten or fifteen years ago. You've got some good runners there, but in the marathon, in the ten thousand. Um, there's, there's no strength in depth. What? Well, oh, sorry. There's, there's not as much strength in depth as yeah. there was um, 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, we we talked. Uh, we interviewed um, your coach Tony Clark um, not long ago, and we were on about how, you know, the the Birkenhead five miler, um, you know, well known local race for us and stuff like that. You know, nowadays if you ran 23 minutes, you would be miles and miles ahead of, of anyone in the field but yeah. you ran that back in in, in the 80s and things like that you, you'd be middle of the pack sort yeah. of sort of runner yeah. um, and it is it's that it's that sort of the, the numbers um, you know there just isn't that sort of um, I, I want to thank Charlie for this book here Stop Feeding Us Lies he's given myself and Matthew a copy I'm really looking forward to reading this are we moving on to talking about it or not quite yet there's a couple of things a couple more things a couple more things, couple more things. I, 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 when, when, you, when you do move I, I just want to because that falls in nicely with sedentary lives. Yeah. And I was speaking to Nathan van der Salem the other day from the Liverpool, um, actually Liverpool Pembroke, I think he was at the time. And he said that nowadays, social media, people are obsessed with going for a run and publishing it out on recognition, you know, publishing constantly. Whereas back then, they just, they didn't know what other people were doing. They were on the toes. They were just, it was part of their lives. They were running, running, running. And there was a general much higher standard. I mean, we're going to go into that perhaps after you've. Um, but 
Well, yeah. one of the reasons for sedentary life, social media, um, have they impacted those statistics that you've researched? Well, I, I think researched? Social, social media is, is, um, has had some strange effects on people. I think um, people are, are, it's a big generalisation, but lots of people just won't uh, be noticed. And I've, I've read comments like, uh, if your run isn't on Strava, you may as well not have done it, and, and ridiculous things like that. Um, but those things didn't exist when, when I was running. Um, and everyone's, everyone's got a, a, a Garmin watch now to, um, to record everything they did. I, I just, I just, <laughs> well they have, and, yeah. and, and, and there's great things about them. Yeah. They're absolutely great things. I, I just had a, a watch that, had a stopwatch on it so I could tell how long it had taken yeah. me, and that was it. Um, and you could judge the mileage of that as yeah. well. And there was a yeah, yeah. sense of feeling, wasn't it, really, then? Because I remember uh, running with my my old Casio when I first started yeah. running things, and it was, it was just a, you'd have a route, you sort of knew how far it was, and yeah. depending on what time you ran it in, you sort of went, well, yeah, I was running at this pace this time, and yeah. that, and yes. general feeling. Of yeah, I think, I think being able to feel uh, how fast you're going is really important when it comes yeah. to racing. And without the watch, these watches, you'd have a better idea of that feeling. Yeah, yeah. So the, if you, the, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't have them. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't got, personally use Strava. Great, they've got great benefits. Yeah. As long as you're, you're not a slave yeah. to those benefits. It's very easy to become a slave with all the technology, all the mod cons that they yeah. they keep pushing at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I know I become a slave to it in the fact that if I get back home and it says I'm point one of a, a mile off the, oh, uh, don't go and run. I go and run the extra point one, don't I? <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I like the idea when I first started this malarkey. Um, I, the stop, what the Casio idea of running, but then I thought, well, and this is the only watch I've ever had. It just basically tells me how many miles I've run, that's all. I write down that. Yeah. Otherwise, with the Casio, what pace I'm running, it would take a, a, a little a bit of time, but then I would, I'd feel it more. Yeah, I'd know it. more about what I was doing. I think, ideally, get rid of it, but why, then why, why not get rid of it? Social media, for me, what is it? I mean, I've, I've, I was on there, I've, I've cut back, and I feel better having cut, cut myself back from it. You know, it's very addictive. The people who work on it work on, I believe, the Las, uh, Las Vegas, the sort of the pulling effect mm -hmm. of uh, the technology. Yeah. And people live their lives on the every, every moment of the day. And I don't know what they're seeking. I've still not fully understood it. It's, it's recognition for everything possible and you get a hit from this like system. Um, but of course, could you not compare it with aiming to achieve at the Olympics? You get the medal, that's a recognition in, in a sense. Because I think you said in the book that you didn't care what people thought about you. But at the same time, to go after the medal, isn't that looking for recognition? And yeah. it's very unfair, it's very unfair to say, but yeah. I, just well, to, so I can not, relate it, you know. No, not for me. It, it was entirely about um, what I said earlier, what can I achieve? The, the recognition comes from the sport and there ought to be recognition for high achievement in every sport. Um, but it wasn't about... You must got a terrific buzz, buzz from the people, you know, the in the stadium as you're coming in, you know. Um, well, you'd, you'd think so, wouldn't you? you, you, you maybe you'd, uh, yeah. but I, 
my I was a yard behind John Tracy and absolutely shattered and my focus was just glued to his back. Uh, it would have been great if I'd been 50 yards behind him knowing that I couldn't catch him and then I could have run around there looking at 80,000 people <laughs> in the Los Angeles Coliseum thinking here I am winning a medal and do a kind of last lap of the track just lapping it up. I would have ended up with the same medal but I wasn't in that position. I was close enough to Silver to be running absolutely flat out for it. So I, I barely noticed it. I noticed it afterwards and had the medal ceremony in there uh, and absolutely was noticing it then. But when I ran into the stadium, not really. Yeah. And I suppose, uh, so yeah, before we jump fully into, sure. into your latest book as well, that ties nicely into um, the little bit of still of your running career that I wanted to sort of yeah. uh, finally touch on which was obviously we jumped over it but the 84 London Marathon mm-hmm. um, you know seen as probably the biggest sporting event in the, in the UK um, and obviously that win there um, obviously then set you up for what was a fantastic um, race in, in the Olympics but um, do you want to talk us through both that that London Marathon and then obviously the, the following year in 85 which is where you, you set your, your um, English record at the time um, and finished second to a, a fellow countryman of, of Steve Jones um, and there's obviously quite a well known and, and funny story of uh, going through one of the tunnels there um, uh, but I'll, I'll let you sort of summarise those, those well, two races really. um, I'd, run, I'd run Houston <laughs> at the beginning of 84 to see if the marathon was going to suit me and I knew absolutely definitely yes um, I was already entered in the London Marathon and from, from my training, um, I thought I could run about 2 hours 10. And I thought 2 hours 10 ought to get me in the team if I can do that. But um, Hugh Jones and Jeff Smith had both run um, really good times that were qualifying times. And they neither of them were running because they thought, well, we'll get picked. So it was really down. There was one place going. Um, in London, so you ha- I had to be first British runner, and there was a stack of good guys in it. But I thought I've, I've got to run two. If I can run two ten, which I think I can, I've got a great chance. So we set off, and, and Jumari Kanga was there, off really fast at the start, and I just, you know, I let I was letting them go during the second mile. They were going so quick, uh, but I just focused on running two ten pace. Um, <coughs> Quite early on, I was in a third group. There was a small group of about four, and then a bigger group with a lot of British runners in. And then I was in a third group. Uh, but we were on 2.10 pace. And um, going across Towbridge almost halfway, um, some of the people from the second group were starting to come back and actually just past halfway, which was spot on 2.10 pace, I went through it. Oh no, slightly, slightly slow, a few seconds slower, because I ran a few seconds faster than the second half of the first. Um, people had gone too fast, were starting to come back, but one by one. So just after halfway, um, I was running with my teammate, Kevin Foster. We, th- there'd, be, there'd be a guy in front of us, and we'd catch him, we'd pass him, and then 15 yards ahead of him, there was another one, and 15 yards ahead of him, and we would just have these like stepping stones yeah. um, and it got to 
um, what, 18 miles and we could see the leading group and we were catching them as well and we weren't, we weren't picking up the pace they were slowing down and we, we just well we picked it up very slightly mm. um, and caught them leading group at about 18 and a half, 19 miles and um, Ikanga as he always did surged and, and my mate John Foster wanted to go with him I said leave him, he'll come back and, and he did, we, we kept running at the same pace and he surged ahead and within a quarter of a mile, half a mile he would come back and then he would surge again and I thought he'd just wear himself out which was great um, and then nearly at 20 miles I, I, I was feeling strong he made one of these surges and when he drifted back to us as you know without picking up our pace he came back to us as soon as he was rather good as I surged and um, got away from him and Kevin and got away and got a gap um, and <coughs> and just moved further away yeah. um, the, the, I, I ended up winning by about a minute and three quarters having been out of sight in the third group at halfway yeah. but I, I ran I was trying to run 210 I ran 2957 yeah. so it was that, that was a race of just um, doing what I thought I could do at even pace yeah. and I thought it would get me a good position now the the Olympic marathon was obviously going to be completely different yeah. and you had to run it differently yeah. but in that race that was the right thing to do yeah. the, the right thing to do you recommend Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. <laughs> uh, you are leaping about a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Great story in that though about Maradona and the handball. Um, and and it, no, it makes sense. It, I mean, very sad what happens to Maradona. But the oh, idea you're talking about integrity in sport now. Integrity, yeah. 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 Um, and doing the right thing and how you think you can get away with it. Going to come back in some shape or form. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I mentioned crime. I was actually about to read crime and punishment. I read no, but you, decades ago. Yeah, you yeah, recommended it. In the I, book. I, I'll spoil the story. Uh, it's about a guy who commits a murder. And he gets away with it. They don't catch him, but he's eaten up with fear of being caught. Absolutely eaten up by constantly terrified that that person on the stairs is coming to arrest him and it's just destroyed his life. So he didn't get away with it at all, uh, basically. Um, and so it was about, you know, I was comparing that to getting away with cheating in sport. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, do you really get away with it? Um, some people do because they don't care. But a lot of people know deep down in their minds that you know, they got whatever they got by uh, the drugs they took or whatever. Um, and I just felt that finishing your running career with whatever you achieved, whatever it is, knowing that you did it legitimately, that's more important to me. Um, so that's what that was about. And yeah. Um, and, and Maradona's goal, is he, he knows he scored that winning goal with his hand. Um, and um, it, it, everyone says he's the greatest footballer ever. He's not to me. He's not. Certainly yeah. not. He's a really bad.
by its daughter, no matter how much talent it had. But anyway, that's really digressing now. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I suppose I, I suppose finally on 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 your running career, one that um, it always gets me actually makes me quite squeamish when I think about it is your Achilles injuries that, that struggled all the way through, um, with various injuries and various uh, sort of mishaps at, at operations and things like that. But obviously leading into um, 88 and the, the 88 Olympic Games in Seoul um, you'd, you'd, you'd come back from a absolutely uh, horrific sort of surgery on your on your Achilles um, where you'd ended up with a sort of a hole in, in yeah. your Achilles hernia and, and that obviously then led you into to London where there was you having suffered for a couple of years leading up to it your times weren't you know you, you weren't able you felt you could make the Olympic team um, you had Steve Jones who chose not to run the trials race um, and ran the, the week before, I think it was. He ran Boston, didn't he? Yeah. So two weeks before. Um, and then, um, you know, if you obviously you ran well in London, you, you, you could make the team through that. Um, but obviously, you, you struggled yourself in, in, in that race in London then and then wrote um, well, to I'd the... I'd written a letter to the selectors long before yeah. that. Um, because I had an operation that had, um, on my Achilles and it had got infected. Um, and a big patch of skin either side of the incision just died. And I, I literally had a hole through my skin where you could see my Achilles tendons. And it had to slowly, slowly, the skin had to grow back from the sides. Yeah. And so I missed, I couldn't train at all for months and months and months. Um, so I missed a huge amount of training. And I, I got back into training. Um, early in 88 yeah. and I wrote to the selectors um, saying I'm, I'm going to run the London Marathon um, to show you that I'm fit enough to complete the marathon but I, because of the injuries I've had I won't be in my top shape but if I can run well there I'm sure I can be in much better shape by the time the Olympics yeah. come because um, that gives me the time I need to be, yeah. to be better so I just you know I just wanted to tell you I've had this problem. Uh, whatever I do, I'm positive I'll be considerably better when it comes to the Olympics if yeah. you pick me. So that was my that yeah. And of, we, of which you were, um, yeah. because it was sixth place. Yeah, in, I finished sixth in the Olympics and, and first Britain by quite a yeah. long way. Though I finished fifth to Britain in the trials. Yeah. There were four of the guys in front of me, but they picked me on obviously my previous Olympics yeah. performances and my commitment yeah that, and, and, and I ran um, 212 yeah in that London which showed that I was physically fit enough to run a marathon yeah um, and, and I could improve from 212 to an Olympic performance in in the months I had yeah. so that so they picked me for that yeah I mean I've, I've, I've watched sort of copies of that that race uh, over and over again um, obviously as I say my mum was we competed in that in, in London yeah. um, was third female yeah. uh, British yeah. female home um, but um, yeah I, I suppose sort of from from that um, there was obviously like a, a talking about what you, you were saying then uh, regarding you know building yourself up for those key races and you said this obviously earlier on in, in, in our discussion um, you know you could really focus in on those key races and that was you know for you it was that year was, was solved was making sure that you knew you weren't in the best of shape at the start of the year coming back from that injury but 
you knew that you know you could train through and by the time you got to Seoul you would be in that great shape and that was you know relating back to what you say there about about that focus and you know not just every race and things like that but having mm. those key races that you really yeah. put everything into and and, and mm. make the success that they, yeah. they can be true was i wasn't in great shape when i went <laughs> to Seoul. <'cause> <laughs> I've, I've no idea how i finished this yeah. um i well it it was a it was a mental psychological thing yeah. to finish in six I ran in nearly two years, yeah. um, yeah. and and my training, I'd lost so much actually that I really struggled to be able to do the training I wanted to. Yeah. Um, <coughs> and um, uh, obviously the Los Angeles Olympics is my best ever yeah. um, performance, but in some ways I regard how I ran in Seoul as perhaps my greatest performance in terms of the shape I was in standing yeah. on the start line. Yeah. And I think um and I mean from from everything I hear obviously you 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 um because you went over to uh you based yourself over in Boston before. Yes. Um yeah. and I know um obviously I hear the stories from 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 my mum um about how she went she was only picked for the team three weeks before the Olympics. Um, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Gosh. So because uh, she she was a 10,000 meter runner really and yes. so she wanted to qualify for the 10 yeah. and missed missed out on that but yeah. she'd run London that year because yeah. both her and my dad had done the miles through the winter and they said yeah. well, what's the harm in yeah. know, doing another marathon um, and then yeah she was only selected three three weeks before um, and so she went out to um, and she she dropped down to pretty much end of her season really she wasn't yeah. in, in, in the sort of shape to run um, but they went to a training camp in Japan uh, which is where the, the British, or the, yeah. at least the marathon camp was, um, yeah. and they didn't have much facilities anywhere to train for marathon. I think they had like a five k loop or something that they were allowed to utilize and things. I, um, I, I have been warned. Yeah. Um, by Alan Story, who was the national marathon coach yeah. at the time, he said, "I've been to Japan. It's hopeless for distance runners. Don't go. Yeah. Find a way to train somewhere else." So I, ju I just wrote the yeah. directors again and said, "I'm going to do a training camp." in Boston to get used to the heat yeah. and and then I'll come out with so um, and then I'll do this thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah I heard it was really really hopeless. They they've gone out and found great facilities for the sprinters. Yeah. Hadn't thought about the distance runners yeah. Um so yeah so yeah let let's get into obviously your um, your new book um Stop uh, feeding us lies and you know there's so much to discuss. Um, you know, we obviously me and Jojo have both got our copies today, so we haven't we haven't read them. No, I've, no. I've read articles around that you've published around the book and things like that. Um, and I think I think let's let's jump into the, the the first topic bit, and it ties back to obviously the the very end of um, and the stuff we've we've already discussed. Um, but it ties back to that that end bit in, in your biography as well. Um, the schools. Um, the sort of selling off of playing fields, that non-competitive sports days that we've discussed and things like that. Um, and the, I suppose where the money is going in terms of, you know, the, where the government wants to, 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 to put the money and things like that. Um, a great example, I suppose, in the running world um, is, is money is now going towards the likes of park run and away from the club system. Um, you know, from UK sports and, and, and being put towards that, which obviously is great from the grassroots of the sport, but to that sort of 
um, competitive side of, of the sport that we're all we're all from, um, and those club systems sort of thing gets them going. I suppose I like you. I don't know if you, you touch on that in your book at all, but I suppose that's in it's a, a segue from that running world into that sort of more open discussion yeah. on things. Well, I, I don't um, I don't get involved in the sport of athletics yeah. in stop being the slide yeah. at all. I talk about the benefit. I have a chapter on the on the physical benefits of exercise. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I also have um, chapters on the about the importance of of play for children. Yeah. Um, not playing on a computer because it's a computer that's playing rather than the child. Yeah. And 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 the importance of physical activity for mental health because the this book's all about really the other half of my life. Which, yeah. you know, I've written a book about running career. The other half of my life is I work for most of my life as a pharmacist. Yeah. Was always interested in health and the human body. Um, and I thought that uh, you could, for a long time, I thought I could, we could make people healthy by giving them medicine, which sometimes is true. Um, but I became more and more frustrated. This is why I wrote the yeah. book. I became more and more frustrated by the number of people I was seeing in my pharmacy who were diligently taking their medicines for metabolic diseases but never getting better. And when I eventually left pharmacy early because I was so frustrated by it, I spent a lot of time researching and writing this book. It took me getting on for five years to do yeah. all the research and writing. Um, it was really about finding the root cause of everybody's um, ill health. Um, you know, type two diabetes and, and heart disease and, and certain cancers and and dementia and, and all sorts of other problems that aren't infectious diseases. Yeah. And you know, in, in the in the distant past, people used to used to die from tuberculosis and stuff like that. How very few people in the UK do die yeah. from that now. But there's millions and millions of people got diseases that you don't catch which no yeah. one else you just develop them through your lifestyle and it's mainly food yeah is the main cause. exercise helps sleep helps enormously not having too much stress helps enormously but the, the main cause of the vast amount of ill health in the uk is the type of food you eat yeah and that that's the main focus of the book though as i've said already i talk about the importance of exercise sleep yeah Children's play. There's, it's it's a book about health yeah. for a wide range of people. So um, I reckon anybody in any circumstances um, could learn something useful from it. It's what I was trying to yeah. write. Um, and the, the stop feeding us lies bit yeah. comes from um, there's a great deal of information. Yeah. that you see in the media and in the newspapers, which is put out there as if it's good scientific research and it's paid for by companies to get the results they want. Yeah. And I've got lots of examples in there to, to, to prove that I'm not yeah. making that up. Um, and, and the real problem goes right back to um, the 1970s, 1980s, when America introduced their National Dietary Guidelines. Yeah. And we copied them in the early 1980s. Was that followed? And that was followed. Uh, was it Keys? Ansel Keys yeah. was the name of the guy. Yeah. Um, he very forceful. Was he 
He was an intelligent guy. He had yeah. several degrees, but none of them in nutrition. Right. He could actually know anything about nutrition, but he persuaded this Senate committee they had that um, heart disease, which was the big thing then, because rates of heart disease had been increasing for decades. In the, and when it got to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they were terrified of it and had to find what was causing it. And this Ansel Keys guy came up with the idea that it was fat in the diet of milk. He didn't actually have any proof, and there's still no proof. Even though most people would say, oh, you shouldn't eat too much saturated fat, it'll clog up your arteries. Mm. It doesn't. And I explain why it doesn't. Um, but it's been repeated so often that everyone believes it. And so we have national dietary guidelines. You'll find them on the NHS website that say we should all eat a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. And that just doesn't work um, metabolically and biologically. Um, you, fat is being vilified. And, and another problem is the word fat, because if you say, well, if you eat too much fat, you'll get fat, that sounds logical, doesn't it? Because the, you use the same yeah. words. But fat in your diet and being fat are, are different things. Most people probably would have no idea um, what their brains are made out of physical structure of our brains. 60 to 65 percent of the human brain consists of fat molecules. Not, it's not exactly the same fat that's, that's underneath your skin, but they are types of fats. Um, and fats in the diet are absolutely essential for human health and proper functioning, for your brain to work, for your nervous system to work. Um, and our bodies are made out of proteins and fats. The only thing you need carbohydrate for, uh, well actually you need carbohydrate for absolutely nothing. There is, a lot of people find this hard to believe, there is no requirement for a human being to eat any carbohydrate at all. Yeah. The only carbohydrate the body uses is glucose for energy. Yeah. Um, and the liver can convert proteins and fats into glucose. Yeah. You don't actually need to eat any. But the NHS advises that 60% of your diet should be carbohydrate, yeah. a substance you don't need. Um, my, my father, as an Irishman who lived on spuds all his life, he found that hard, hard to believe. Hard to believe. Well, um, I'm sure he didn't live on just spuds. <laughs> Probably ate loads almost, of spuds. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> he still does. Well, well, <laughs> and he's the same age as you. Oh, okay. 52 he's born. Yeah. yeah. 68. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. Another aspect of it, because potatoes are real food as opposed to really processed food. And that is another big, big, big problem, is that more than 50% of the food people eat in this country is highly processed food, sort of ready meals. And, and, and they, they put it through all sorts of processing, uh, which often loses all the, not all, or, or many of the vitamins and minerals that would have naturally been in there. It alters the structure. They put chemicals into it um, to emulsify it and have, give it a longer shelf life. And, and mm. it's, it's like a chemical soup, an awful of processed food. And a lot of it, uh, the deleterious effects accumulate really slowly. That, you know, it's not like you eat um, a ready meal and you're ill. 
you wait, process food for years and years and years, and slowly you'll become ill. Because um, the body's great at, at, at handling problems yeah. until you overload it. And the type, of illness, the, the type of illnesses we're talking about yeah. over a prolonged... They, they, they develop slowly. What types of illnesses? Yeah. What, what types of... Sorry. Sorry. Um, well, type 2 diabetes is, is surging a lot in the moment. Um, and that is... Another way of putting that is carbohydrate intolerance. Because it, it, if your blood sugar level is too high, you've got type 2 diabetes and it stays too high. Um, and that's... We've got to get into a little bit of biochemistry here yeah. to understand it. When you eat carbohydrate of any sort, it gets converted into... Uh, sugar, your blood sugar goes up. High blood sugar is dangerous. Um, so your body produces insulin. The hormone insulin takes blood, takes sugar out of the blood, transports it into cells if, it, if the cells need any energy. If they don't need energy, it gets the liver to convert it into fat and stores it in your fat cells. Too much sugar in the blood is dangerous. Someone who can't control their type 2 diabetes can end up with damaged kidneys, going blind, feet amputated, um, dementia, and dying of a heart attack 10 years too early. If you can't control your diabetes, that's a typical progress of that disease. And it's caused by too much blood sugar. So your body, your body knows too, much, too high blood sugar is really bad for you. So insulin takes it out of the blood. And if you don't need the energy straight away, it stores it as fat. So you eat, you eat more carbohydrate, which you don't need, stores it as fat. You eat more carbohydrate, stores it as fat. So you, if you keep eating a high carbohydrate diet, you get fatter and fatter uh, because of the action of insulin. The idea, which is promoted all the time, and has just recently been promoted by our Prime Minister Boris yep. Johnson, that because he had a scare with COVID, because he's overweight, that we all need to eat less and move more. We're told that all the time. Well, it works for highly trained athletes because highly trained athletes are capable of moving so much that they can burn off a lot, lot of energy. Yeah. But an ordinary person who just is a bit overweight and wants to lose some weight thinks, well, I'll go for a jog. That will get rid of my weight because of, they think, well, I'll burn some calories true is it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is we've got two stores of energy in the body. There's the fat stores, which are completely unlimited. You can become absolutely enormous with fat stores if you keep pushing more and more carbohydrate in that gets converted to fat. So there's the fat stores and there are there's a glycogen store, which most of us know all about. It can, it's, it's glucose in a stored form and you can store a maximum of about 2,500 calories. Um, so if you're typically eating a high carbohydrate diet, as you recommended, you'll have high levels of insulin. You go, ordinary guy goes for a run, runs for 25 or 30 minutes. You actually only burn about 300 calories. Those 300 calories come out of your glycogen store. They don't touch your fat stores because the other thing insulin does, it blocks access to your fat stores. Because if there's insulin around, it means you've been eating lots of sugar. 
so it doesn't let you use fat. You've got to burn that sugar first because too much sugar is good bad for you. So you, you go for a run, you use up some energy, it all comes out of the glycogen store, you haven't touched, or that run hasn't touched your fat stores, you have another carbohydrate meal that goes to the glycogen store back up. So I'm going to have to read the book. Got to <laughs> got to change your diet to lose weight. And you've got to stop having food that keeps your insulin levels high. So that's yeah. that's a well, very quick summary. It's more, it's more complicated, but that's oh, a yeah. quick summary. Yeah. Um, my father is is borderline at the moment. Being told by his doctor, type two, borderline. You know, and watch. He drinks a lot. He drinks a lot. I know you're partial to a real ale, Charlie. But well, he, he drinks more than just a, a pint, he, you know. And that would cause his sugar levels to, re I imagine, that's perhaps the cause of it for him. Uh, and all those potatoes. Those potatoes, I never potatoes thought about. Potatoes are all carbohydrate. Well, I never thought about that. I never thought it's all something, but... Yeah, I never thought about that side of it, where it could be... Well, his issue could be actually coming from the fact that he thinks that those potatoes are, are everything to him. And he has a bucket load of them every night, you know. Um, well... That, that all gets converted to sugar. Yeah. Alcohol also, um, it, how that was is more complicated, but that w there's a lot of calories in alcohol. Um, I mean, you shouldn't count calories, but they all add up. Yeah. Counting calories isn't the way to go. Controlling insulin and other hormones is the way to go. Um, and if you, if you, the other thing about insulin, which I need to say, is that you get, so you eat lots of carbohydrate, eat lots of potatoes, you get a spike in blood sugar, insulin comes along, reduces that spike, but it often overshoots, so you get low blood sugar, and that makes you feel hungry, so you eat more, um, yeah. which is why people eat carbohydrate all day, they'll have a carbohydrate breakfast, and they need to have um, a biscuit with their morning coffee, then they have a carbohydrate lunch, they need to have something with their tea yeah. in the afternoon, and they're just eating all day because they're on this glucose spike, insulin spike roller coaster. Um, and you need to keep, if you want to lose weight, you need to keep insulin low. And to do that, you need to adjust your diet. Yeah. So, uh, I mean sorry, I'm just going to make one more. Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the statin, you've done some research on statins. And my father is also on a, on a statin. Um, so I hope he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to lend him that book. Um, statin drugs have been the most financially successful drug in the entire history of the pharmaceutical industry. They come from the same idea that fat causes heart disease. And they, ha they narrowed it down to cholesterol causes heart disease, which isn't true. I've got, I've got an entire chapter on that. It needs a chapter to explain it. Uh, but cholesterol is absolutely vital. The liver makes loads of cholesterol every day because it's vital to our health. We would die with no cholesterol. Um, the, that term good cholesterol and bad cholesterol was invented by the pharmaceutical industry to make people scared of cholesterol so they would take their statin drugs. There's, no, there's only one cholesterol. There's not a bad one and a good one. Um, there's been a huge amount of manipulation of data about that, which again I explain. Um, and the other, th and you can have high cholesterol. And that that doesn't mean you're ill at all. You no, can be no, it's just it's just, just a figure, a, just a number. It's a laboratory number. Um, but yet the doctor would read that as 
Oh, you've got high cholesterol. <coughs> you need to take something. Or? Yes. Um, the, the the amount of cholesterol in our body in our bodies varies according to a typical bell curve. You know that yep. shape of outliers, and most people are in the middle. You'll have most people will be in the middle of cholesterol levels. Some people have very low. Some people have very high. The pharmaceutical industry draw a line right down the middle and said, if you're higher than the middle, you've got high cholesterol. And just made this arbitrary number they're trying to get everybody down to. Uh, but cholesterol is vitally important for brain function, for how our cells work. Um, you, can't, you can't produce sex hormones without cholesterol. You can't produce vitamin D in your skin without cholesterol. And it, it's, a, it's a difficult subject to... Um, talk about something like this yeah. because there will be some people on them who may need to be on them but as an ex-pharmacist I certainly believe there are an awful lot of people who don't need to be on them yeah. and they have a lot a lot of side effects a couple of, couple of personal questions sorry I cook a, I cook a, a steak a sirloin steak in the frying pan using dripping excellent and then I put it onto my plate and I look at the fat and I just think because I've been conditioned, I think the fat is bad. The fat is bad, and it's a big chunky piece of fat. And I, I don't need that. I cut that away. Are you saying that that fat actually is is there's no need to cut that away? Eat no, it. I eat it. You I eat it. Yeah. I always, all I all I fat eat. like that yeah, raw. Yeah. You know, because we've been conditioned. Yeah, we, we think have. when we see pieces of fat, pork scratchings are full of fat, aren't they? But most people wouldn't go near them. They'd think they were the worst thing in the world. Uh, yeah, you've, we've all been conditioned to uh, to think that that fat on meat is bad for us, and it isn't. No. Um, it's processed. Some processed fats are, but naturally occurring fat that you get on a piece of meat is nutritious and delicious. And the other question is: as, a, as, a, as a, I'm running more, more and more, uh, not to your extent, Charlie, but um, my appetite. Oh, I can eat everything. Yes. Everything. I never put on weight. But I, I have generally the only thing that will satisfy me is a bowl of porridge in the morning. This morning I had some blueberries. I threw a load of blue porridge, boiled it all up, porridge. Um, you're not saying carbohydrates for someone like myself who's excessively. Yeah. Is that a good I'm, thing, porridge, or, or would you say well? Well, it's probably better than um, than sugar-coated cereal. Yeah. But eggs would be better still nutritionally. But not ev every day. Or see, I read a fact. A fact. It wasn't a fact. You've probably been told you shouldn't have eggs every day. Uh, NHS again, three yep. or four eggs a week. My father gives me from the free-range eggs, and to get through them, I'd have to have three a day, um, which would be 21 a week, but I, I try not to eat that many because I do have this idea from the conditioning that three or four eggs, okay, it's not really three or four, it could be seven, but there is a limit on it. But eat as many eggs as you want. Okay, and it wouldn't do me any harm? No. They're one of the eggs are one of the most the best foods in the world in terms of the nutrition you get and how cheap they are and how versatile they are. You can do all sorts of things with eggs. They're incredibly uh, nutritious and they're cheap. Um, someone running doing lots of running, I'm not going to say don't eat porridge for your breakfast. Someone with type two diabetes, I'll say you've really got to absolutely cut back on carbohydrates. There are lots of see the. If you went, your dad has said he's borderline. He's probably been told, he may have been told by his doctor, type 2 diabetes is a 
progressive disease that can't be cured because that's what doctors tell people. Well, there are doctors around the world that I quote in there who are completely reversing type 2 diabetes with diet by mm. cutting out carbohydrates altogether. I've always believed that you can reverse it because um, I've heard guys like yourself saying that you can and a lot of people don't believe that. They, they think that once that's it, you're well, finished. You, you, prob you possibly can't cure it and the difference is if you reverse it, you don't have any symptoms. So you aren't doing any damage to yourself. But if you started eating lots of carbohydrate again, it might come straight back. So you are cured, but you've reversed it. And rever reverse it, if, if you haven't got any symptoms and you're not doing any damage to yourself, it doesn't matter. But um, it's possible that if, you, if you, your body has has reached that stage so if you've started eating a high carbohydrate high sugar diet again you might be type 2 diabetic straight away so you, you need for somebody like that they'd have to stay away from carbohydrates all the time but they would not have any of the symptoms and they would not develop all those horrific conditions i described earlier so so um i, I want to jump in a little bit and, and talk about on on that thing so i Unlike John Joe, who doesn't put any weight on when he eats as, as much as he wants. I, re as, as a runner, uh, I can get it from my mum, to be fair. Um, and my girlfriend said that the, the fiancé is the same. Um, we both like our food. We both like to eat. Um, but obviously, we both want to be at the, 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 the pinnacle or, or that we can achieve it with our running. Um, so, we go through you know stages where... We'll, we'll ridiculously diet like I know my mum and I got it from my mum because my mum did it which was like you know she dropped to a thousand calories and that, you know that sort of number and stuff like that um, to try and lose weight and, and all that but then what what I've noticed and I was listening I was listening to uh, an interview with yourself um, in another podcast and um, and something you were saying regarding right, the, obviously the calories is for a start that's what we're thinking of we, we think oh I can only have this many calories so we've got to keep it down on this um, but then actually you know a thousand calories i'm burning two thousand plus calories when i run i'm burning so many calories anyway just through general moving around and things like that um but then i'm only eating a thousand calories because i'm thinking that's what we only lose weight and it and it works but i can only maintain that for a very small period because the motivation to do that is there which i, I know you do you do mention uh, and come on to so um, i explained that as well yeah it's you um yeah you, you if you eat less than you're using you lose weight because it had to take the energy from stores yeah. so you lose weight but you you can't maintain it yeah um and people who who aren't runners um who are overweight and, and they go to all those those typical weight loss companies yeah. they get them to cut back on the calories so you cut back you you then spend your time feeling hungry all yeah. the time you're continually thinking about food which you're not allowed um, your metabolism slows. If, if you cut back on calories for a day or two, you just take it out of storage. If yeah. you cut back on calories for a month, your body thinks there's a famine. Yeah. And it, it reduces your metabolism. Yeah. It also continually reminds you to eat because it, it thinks well, there isn't any food. It, it drives you to find food. Yeah. Um, and, and so you become, your body temperature drops very slightly. You become yeah. cold, lethargic, hungry irritable you need huge willpower to maintain it yeah um and 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 you can't sustain that for a long period of time yeah. it's impossible 
and, and then what happens is, so you go back to satisfying your hunger, yeah. but you've now reduced, you've lowered your metabolism, so you actually pile the weight on faster. Yeah. So that's what I was, I was going to say then was that we obviously we do this for you know maybe two or three weeks and we, we we've lost the, the weight we wanted to lose and we've, we're down to sort of a more race weight and we're we're feeling good about it and then suddenly you know we might get that race done and so we're like oh let's let up and we'll we'll go into this massive binge then on, on food and pile all that weight that we've just lost back on and one of the things I was thinking I was thinking about this after listening to to uh, to your interview in that um, and then reading some of the articles around the book um, and I was thinking to myself well actually. You know, this winter, what might be a thing for, for my, my fiance, the way she was, she was 16 stone a couple of years ago, so she was dr- dr- dramatic weight loss. She's now running low 18 minute 5Ks and things like that, so, you know, very, very different sort yeah. of build and, and everything than she was. Um, but she's lost so in, lost the weight in such a dramatic way that she's left herself with um, excess skin and things like that and stuff because she's lost, lost in a way the fat, the fat stores that would fill that. Yeah. And I was thinking, actually... And she doesn't. She's got down to a weight that, for a height and things, that would, and for the type of runner and the miles she's running, you would think well, that doesn't sound right. Sounds like the scales aren't working properly or something like that. Um, because she and she can't. She's really struggled to lose any more. And I thought to myself, actually, you know, off what I'm hearing from from Charlie and things like that, maybe what's better to do when you go back into the winter and she's hitting her 60, 70 mile weeks that she that she does through the winter is actually eat as much as she likes as long as the food source is. Is, is you know uh, natural sort of food sources you know as, as many like say as many eggs as she wants the yeah. the you know yeah. the, the meat and things like yeah. that vegetation yeah. stuff like that but none of the processed rubbish which is what we tend to do is we'll sit there at nine o'clock at night and think oh we're starving we're starving and we'll nip across the road and, and literally buy the work the, the shop's worth of chocolate and, and come home and eat it all and that's that's how you put weight yeah eating that stuff yeah and um eating if you, if you, you know, if you cut back on calories f- for one day, yeah, you might, you'd lose a bit of weight, and it, it wouldn't mess you about. But if you go for a long period of time, it messes you up too yeah. much. And the other thing is, if you're cutting back on calories, you're quite possibly not getting enough protein. Yeah. Um, but if you if you eat a low carbohydrate diet and eat as much as you want, you're you're not raising your insulin. Therefore, you don't get hunger that isn't real hunger yeah. so your your appetite becomes better controlled and you don't feel hungry all the time see you d- I never feel like having a snack in between meals yeah it just never occurs to me um, and I'm, I'm not fanatical about it yeah. because I I'm, I'm naturally fairly slim yeah um, I, I eat as much as I want but I never I'm never hungry in between meals yeah ever um, but you know, cutting back too much, you're missing out on nutrients, especially if you're training. Yeah. So it should be much better off eating as much as you want, as long as it's real food, and and not too high in carbohydrates. Yeah. And then. And what, what? Sorry, Boris Johnson is saying sixty percent carbohydrates. What would you? What, what would be a, a more? Thirty percent, five. Oh, five percent. <laughs> five is all you need. It's um, all you need, but yeah. Well, you don't actually need any, but but it's extremely difficult to avoid them completely. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to eat instead. Well, the, I'm I'm not suggesting yeah. this. 
to to <laughs> you or your listeners. But because of all the research I've done, yeah. um, there are quite a few people around the world who are entirely carnivore. They don't eat any plants. They only eat animal fat and protein. And a lot of them have done it because they were having a variety of health problems. Um, some of them, some of it, quite different arthritis and skin problems, and right, and they all say that all their digestive problems disappeared yeah. when they just eat animal source foods. And I suppose that's that's jumping onto I suppose into a thing where you know that's the thing that should be maybe talked about and discussed and, and everything like that. But I think in a, going back to the, the mention of social media and things like that, that we discussed earlier on is you can't say things like that nowadays anywhere because you get you can just get attacked I, by this I, this thing I've of, been of absolutely not physically yeah. but, but verbally attacked by yeah. vegans yeah. For, for telling you the same thing I've really yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, well obviously yeah. we're going to say I was going to mention um, there was a documentary out and it was earlier this year or end of last year Game Changers documentary oh, yeah. which was obviously when you look into it it was um, funded by one of the, the largest sources of pro uh, uh, company yeah. pro, uh, pea protein um, and obviously had you know I watched it and for the first the 20 way, minutes these I was were all vegan products they were all, yeah. Yeah, they were, it, was, it was all about going vegan athletes being vegan things like that or at least that's apparently, how I started apparently the, the world's strongest man is a vegan one, of, one of them one of them on one there and things and, and, I, and I, I, to be fair the, when I watched it the first 10-15 minutes I was oh, like actually that sounds convincing but then it just it went on too long. It then started to go into all the other things, you know, increase your sex drive, just do this, do increase yeah. this and everything. Yeah. And then it, at that point, I was just sort of starting to go, you'd convince me to go vegan in 10 minutes and then completely switch me off being yeah. interested because you've now pushed too much agenda, too much sort yeah. of thing and, and yeah. doesn't feel like there's enough evidence to any of that. You're just trying yeah. to cover every base under yeah. the sun yeah. with that. With that. If, if somebody, my, my attitude is somebody wants to be vegan for... Um, for what they perceive to be ethical reasons, yeah. that's up to them. What I object to is them promoting veganism as if it's a healthy diet, because it isn't. Yeah. It's nutritionally deficient. Seriously nutritionally deficient. You've got to take supplements yeah. if you're on a vegan diet. Perhaps they're happy to do that. Um, but things like vitamin B12 is absolutely essential to human health and there's no other implants. Yeah. You can't get that from any any of this, I don't know, soy milk, nothing like no. that? No. Nothing. No. Unless it's been artificially added. Yeah. Um, the one thing that does attract me to becoming a vegan or a vegetarian is the ethics when you look at the way meat is produced, mass production. I uh, do, do have question marks over that. Well, do you think about that, Charlie? Yes, I've thought a lot about it and I've written about it and I, I, and I knew that I had to tackle that. Um, a lot of the stuff you see on television is um, a sections of American meat production where they have big, these huge feedlots where there's thousands of cows in, in a field that's got no grass in it and they're all um, fair, they're not eating grass. That, that doesn't happen in the UK. Um, or if it does, it's very, very rare. I have to, I have to, I have to yeah. always <laughs> qualify everything I say. Or, or not currently, because <laughs> who knows where, or the trade where we're going with things. No. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, if you buy meat from, if you're lucky enough to have a local butcher, if you buy meat from your local butcher, he'll have got it from a local farmer. 
and those cows who have been eating grass in the field. Um, the, and the thing that is never mentioned when we talk about veganism is the, the considerable number of animals that die for the production of crops. Never thought about that. That's an interesting one. The, you know, if you're going to feed a lot of people plant crops, you have to do it on a big scale. Um, and they they have a huge field of, of monocropped, no hedgerows, um, and they'll spray it with, with pesticides and herbicides. And thousands of bees, birds, butterflies, and other bugs die. Um, field mice and voles and all those sort of animals die in their thousands for plant food. So, in fact, a... Some, I mentioned a carnivore before. Someone, a carnivore, a, a male, someone who only eats animals, could feed himself for two for a year on two cows. So two cows would die. A vegan would not kill anything as big uh, and as obviously alive as a cow, but would kill thousands and thousands and thousands of insects and and. Um, birds and, and small mice and yeah. stuff. So, however you, wh however, wherever your food comes from, something suffers for it. Yeah. Homegrown is, is it perhaps another, you know, step forward if you can do that. Um, yeah. But, you, you can't, um, unless you've got a lot of land, you can't be, feed yourself entirely on homegrown food. It's a, it, most people say, you know, they grow some vegetables in the, in the garden and, and they, it's nice to have some fresh vegetables straight out of the ground. Um, it's such but a we need a food system to feed everybody. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. Um, I think back, wasn't there an at, was it Atkins diet that was just completely meat to lose weight? To well, it was all, girl, it, was it, it was in the 1970s. Um, it was it was the same thing. It was a very very low carbohydrate diet with lots of protein and fat in it, um, and it worked extremely well. But it got a lot of bad publicity, which came from vested interests. Um, there's a story going around that um, Atkins, uh, Doctor Atkins, uh, died of a heart attack, which isn't true. He died. He lived in New York, and and he actually died when he came out of his apartment building in the winter, uh, slipped on the ice and banged his head on the curb. Um, didn't have a heart attack at all. But if you put Atkins yeah. into a search engine, you'll find stories saying, mm. oh, he had this diet and he died of a heart attack, which isn't true. Stop feeding us lies. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the ultimate diet for a runner or for anybody would be a balance, a mix, but... Natural, natural sort of. Natural, well, get, getting Getting rid of sugar especially in drinks drinking sugar is a really bad idea mm. um, one of the things I really dislike are the, what they call energy drinks mm. which have about a can of energy drink has about 20 spoons of sugar in it um, I say I say in the, I'm sure I, can, I, I don't can, drink them sir I'm sure <laughs> I, can, I can quote me but I, you know what did I say energy drinks don't give you energy they give you Tooth decay, mood swings, and diabetes. Well, my friend, he drinks a, 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 a monster. Is that what it's called? 
what's all that about? Well, that's, that's why you struggle with your weight. Yeah. Get rid of that. Get rid of that first. I, to be fair, I you drink, drink it, I drink it for, the the caffeine, caffeine. Caffeine. for the caffeine. Is that much good enough? Have a cup of coffee. I know. Tea. I know. <laughs> going into, sorry to, I don't know if I'm, going into races, I've often, you know, you think, oh, I need food, I need food yeah. before a race, in the morning, and I, I generally I eat too much, and I end up getting a stitch, I've made that mistake too often. When you were racing at your, at your best, what were you, th- you know, thinking before, I know different distances determine well, a different diet, but. Well, I, um, when I ran marathons, the London marathon was always in the morning, yeah. um, fairly early, on, not really early in the morning, but um, half nine, ten o'clock. Uh, I didn't have any breakfast. You, you'd wake up as late to, to the time you could get up, you'd focus more on the sleep, and you wouldn't have any breakfast. Well, I, w- I would wake up when I normally did. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to wake up too close to the race. Mm. I like to, it takes me a while to, um, even, even then I was always a little bit stiff when I got out of bed, so I'd want plenty of time to just move around um, have a have a drink. What kind of drink? Well, probably just water. I might, really? I might have a cup of tea or something like that. Nothing. I wouldn't have a strong coffee because that's too diuretic, make you. Well, that's this is the thing you see. We've we've mentioned coffee and, and yeah. get this idea that co- ca- caffeine's a great thing before a race, but well, not not there is. There is some research that says it, it helps you to um, use fat molecules for energy. It comes, yeah, um, and it's a bit of a stimulant, but can also make you lose water through your bladder. So, um, um, those sort of things, I think you need to um, experiment with, see what works for yourself. Um, but I, I didn't eat anything before a marathon because I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to have and you've got enough energy stored inside you the night before though you'd be having a, yeah. I recall you had a lasagna I think <laughs> is that right? that's right the night before the London Marathon in 1984 yeah lasagna yeah. what were you thinking so. behind that particular dish? Well, I, I, I mean, at the time, I was still of the opinion you should eat lots of fat <laughs> right, yeah. because everybody said it, and I hadn't. All the books said it, and yeah. um, that was what everyone believed. But you put in some great performances. I mean, looking back, are you thinking now you could have done even better on a different diet? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I never dwell on that sort of thing. Um, I always. I always ate real food. I. I very seldom, I mean, occasionally, have to take away the stuff, but rarely. You'd um, go organic then, would you, Charlie? Organic in terms of real food these days, because we don't know. Yeah. Even the chicken breast, they inject them with, don't they sort of make them? American yep. sort of. They look better on the shelf, apparently, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I don't have any problem eating it. Uh, a supermarket bought chicken. Um, I think there may be some benefits to organic, but I don't go on about organic at all, okay. um, because it's they're always a good bit more expensive, yeah. and I don't want to give anybody the impression that it costs a lot of money to have a good diet, yeah. because 
you you might spend more money on on protein and real food but if you eat properly you, you don't need to buy those biscuits and cans of I've always thought that my friend here he, he eats at McDonald's um, before a race now I never go there never been there good for you uh, horrible place um, but does you, it, you say it's easily digested the night before. I don't, know, I don't know whether it's easily digested, but it's I a psychological know. reason is why I eat oh, it, yeah. not a um, a nutrition reason. You so I yeah, eat it well, for the simplicity of like the nerves build up before a race, and I think that that is just like that and a, and a beer the night before a race. Just it's like a down. calming sort of. Yeah. It's like it's just another day rather than yes. the big right. build up to a race, which is why yeah. I have it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Um, if you did that every night, yeah, I would say you need a change. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it, okay, you know, always occasionally. Yeah, but it depends how often it is. And it I'm gonna play that. A lot of guys, a lot of guys on track. Right, I've heard this. A lot of guys before a race, early morning. You know, it could be nine o'clock start. You're not gonna get up at five to have a you know, big breakfast. That that could be a problem as well. You know, you fatigue, lack of sleep. But um, if you get up a couple of Weetabix now. What are Weetabix? You know, I mean, is that something you'd? Are they well, processed? Aren't they really? Well, well, it's grass seed basically. Yeah, you know, they talk seed. about they talk about whole grains. Yeah. Um, all those whole grains are just different types of grass. It's a seed of grass. Right. Okay. It's been processed. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's got some protein in it, and mm. Um, mm. but it's grass seed, and yeah. we didn't evolve into what we are by eating grass seed. Um, and you know it, it has such whole grain goodness is what they call it and it, it's all come from um, it's all political because they're back in you know I was talking about those dietary guidelines yeah. back in America that Senate committee um, they said everyone should uh, eat more whole grains and they gave grain farmers in America huge subsidies which is when they knocked down all the fences and built these huge, huge fields, and they exported it. And so they they got they exported grain all over the world, and America made lots of money in, uh, by selling their grain, which the American taxpayers had subsidised, and it, it inevitably damaged their health mm. um, because they stopped eating natural um, foods like eggs. So they're having cereals for breakfast um. yeah. so I think um, with that sort of message of eat natural yeah. um, less carbs or no carbs if you can um, and you know it's absolutely just uh, fantastic to have, have been here Charlie to have, have spoken to you we've got two hours and ten minutes now we've, been, we've been chatting <laughs> yeah. um, I, you know it's just wonderful to listen to um, obviously your 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 running life and, and your experiences um, and then obviously discuss these these you know really um, interesting um, tough topics to sometimes discuss um, and things that um, plenty of plenty of different voices and 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 lies out there on it um, and jolly stop feeding us lies how health and happiness come to those who seek the truth uh, readily available it's um you could it's really available from Amazon as either a paperback or a Kindle. Um, you could order it from any bookshop. Wonderful. 
I don't know how many bookshop stuff we could order it from any bookshop if you wanted to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So. And as always, um, we like to with oh our yeah, guests, yeah. we like to bring <laughs> our John Joe's traditional Irish Guinness. Well, you know it's it's oh. good for your, it's good for your health, Charlie. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> and obviously a made to run top. Oh, fantastic! Um, as well, well, uh, technical awesome. run top there. Thank you. Um, Wasn't expecting gifts. So as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. So, um, yep. Yeah, Thank you. Shirt and a beard, lads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks again, Charlie. Uh, it's been great to interview you, and uh, hope you've all enjoyed the show. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.